I want to take a minute and kind of review. Our profile has been growing as we've looked at you defined. What does that mean? As a follower of Christ, how can you be defined? How, how should you be described um, in Christ? And there's several character traits and profile uh, things that we see building in 1 Peter. So your profile is a follower of Christ. First, we see in 1 Peter 1, uh, verses 3 and 4, that you are an heir of the living hope. That is part of the promised inheritance. You're an heir of the living hope. So on the screen will be the, the verses that remind us of that. 1 Peter 1, 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, what has he done? He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance, get this, that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. So kind of the foundation profile, you know, if, if you were to have a, a spiritual LinkedIn, if you were to have a spiritual Facebook or a spiritual Instagram that, that gave and listed your profile as a believer, the first thing that should be on the list is an heir of the living hope. Next, we see that you should be an example of genuine faith, an example of genuine faith, 1 Peter 1, 7 and 8. So that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Then verse 8, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. So an heir of the living hope, an example of genuine faith, the next profile statement then is an active participant in God's plan of redemption. An active participant in God's plan of redemption. 1 Peter 1 and verse 13. Therefore, Peter says, so he, he's kind of pointing back to all of these things that he's talked about. You're an heir of the living hope and you're an example of genuine faith uh, that you've been tested by, by, by fire. You, you, you're, you have authentic faith in Christ. And he says, then therefore, because of all that, Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So we are all to be an, an active participants. This isn't something like, well, you know, God's just going to, you know, we're just going to kind of go through life and, and what's convenient happens and what doesn't happen doesn't happen. No, Peter and, and Christ is calling us to be intentional, to serve him, to be an active participant in God's plan of redemption. And then lastly, we begin to see last week, and we'll kind of finish this profile uh, character trade out this week, a growing disciple of Christ. A growing disciple of Christ. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk. Why? That by it you may grow up into salvation. So last week we looked at part of the process of that is to reject your former way of life. As you think about, how did I live before coming to Christ? What were some of the, the, the passions and desires and lifestyle choices that I had? Well, now that you're a believer, now that you're an heir of the living hope, you're to reject the former way of life as an unredeemed sinner. We looked at last week also, you're, you are to crave the spiritual food of God's word. You're to crave that. You're to long for that. It says, long for the pure spiritual milk in 1 Peter 2.2. 2. So we talked about last week a little bit. What do you crave for? 
Are there other things that you crave more, that you long for more than a growing relationship with Jesus Christ? It's very easy to be distracted and to have detours in life. Even though we're followers of Christ and believers, it's easy for this world to, to be very attractive and for us to be distracted by that. But so what do you crave for? Now, as we look back, and we're going to go kind of a little bit deeper into 1 Peter 2, 2, and then also verse 3, I wanted to draw your attention to one word first off, okay? So look again at 1 Peter 2, 2. It'll be on the screen also. But notice this. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk. Long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, so I have some, some good news that I want to share with you about God's Word, and then I have some discouraging or bad news that I want to share with you about God's Word. Okay, here it is. So um, if many of you have a copy of the Bible in your hand, or you may have it open on an app in your phone, but some of you already know this fact. It's, it's, uh, it's fairly common uh, fact to be known, but the Bible is by far the best-selling book ever. It's the best-selling book worldwide. So it's not just the best-selling book in America. It's not the best-selling book, you know, in just one little country here or this place there. But if you look at it worldwide, the Bible is the best-selling book to date. And, it, and all the others are far distant. The Guinness Book of World Records, you'll see this up on the screen. But it says, research con conducted by the British and Foreign Bible Society in 2021, so a few years ago, suggests that the total number probably lies between 5 and 7 billion copies. In the 21st century, Bibles are printed at a rate of around 80 million a year. 80 million per year. Now, the Quran comes in second place. About half the number of copies of that. So the Quran is in second place by some of the list. Um, the, in third place, the Little Red Book, quotations from Chairman Mao, uh, is ranked about third with 900 million copies sold. Don Quixote. Anybody, if you've heard of Don Quixote or read Don Quixote, raise your hand. Okay, I, am, I, I guess I am uh, um, challenged in that way. I'd never really heard of this book, but it's the fourth best-selling book of all time with 500 million books sold. So all of us who haven't really heard of Don Quixote or read it, maybe we need to uh, come up to speed. The Book of Mormon ranks in the top 10 with around 200 million sold. Harry Potter is the best-selling series that's ever been sold with over 600 million sold. But you take those all in the top 10... And it has no comparison to the Bible with between 5 and 7 billion copies to date that have been sold and distributed around the world. That's the good news. That many, many different people in many different languages have the Bible where they can open or they can pull it up on an app, they can pull it up on a computer, and they can read it for themselves. And there are, there are still um, hundreds and hundreds of people that right now have dedicated their life to continue to translate and get God's word into the hands of those that are even more remote and more distant. That's the good news. Now, what's the bad news? This is probably also one of the most misunderstood and misapplied and abused book to date. The Bible has been used to uh, defend the, the, the Crusades in years past, support holy warfare. It's been used to support slavery. 
And then even after slavery, the Bible, and I've, I've read for myself um, some, some people that defended that even after slavery, the freed slaves should be sent back to Africa and, and gave some scripture of where they, they pulled that from. That's, that is totally misapplied. The Bible has been used to support homosexuality as long as it is a, a true and faithful partnership between two partners. And the Bible has been used to uh, support that and to defend that. The Bible has been used to minimize sin and to, to really um, exaggerate in a sense or, or distort the understanding of the grace of God. Someone that I dearly love, as I was uh, talking with this individual, this individual uh, referred back to some of the sins of the, of, of the known characters of the Old Testament, like you know, David and Abraham, and, and used some of those people to say, well, look at the sins that they committed, but yet God still used them. And so you know, even though I'm living in sin, and even though this is, you know, is kind of my life now, God's got it. God's okay. Then he continued on and said, you know, think about the woman that was brought to Christ as an adulteress, but yet Christ did not, did not condemn her. And that's true to an extent. But Christ also looked at her and with great love, and he, he who, who knows the hearts of men and women looked at her and says, go and sin no more. He didn't say, hey, go and just keep, you know, keep, stay in adultery and this is the life for you. This is a good path. Just continue as an adulteress. He says, Jesus says, no, go and sin no more. So the bad news is the Bible is often misinterpreted. The Bible is often misquoted and it's very abused. Now, the question that I'm about to ask is not for the holy crusaders of the past. It's not for those who defended slavery it's not for those who, even after the slaves had been freed, said, yes, I mean, you, know, you need to go back to Africa, and here's the passages that, that support that. It's not even mainly for those who defend homosexuality today using Scripture. The next question is for many of us that would even say, yes, we believe the Bible. We stand for God's Word. But yet, sometimes in day-to-day choices, we minimize the importance of Scripture in our life. This question's for you. Here it is. Do you value the pure and uncompromising word of God? Do you value the pure and uncompromising word of God? Even before the New Testament was completely written, you know, now we can open it. We can look at all the books in the New Testament. We can read it for ourselves. I would imagine that many of you have uh, several copies of the Bible at home, and even if you don't, with a couple, you know, tips of your fingers, you can bring up any kind of version. You can bring up different languages. It's very accessible to us. But even before the Bible was completely finished, Peter gave this warning that we've already seen, but I want to read it again in 1 Peter 2.2. Like newborn infants long for the what? Pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. Now, as we, as we look at this verse, I want to remind you of something, that as we look at the Bible, the chapter divisions are not inspired. 
Okay, that was, that was put in to, to kind of help people to be able to find uh, different passages. And, uh, of course, some of you kids maybe have grown up, and I, I kind of was grow up in this era, you know, where we didn't have the Bible app. Um, I, I know that's surprising because I look so young, but we had, we had the paper copies of the Bible, and we had sword drills, right? And, you, you know, you'd find the verses. So chapter revisions are helpful, but sometimes they can break up the flow and make it even more difficult to understand what is really being referenced. As we look back at 1 Peter chapter 1, as that chapter finishes, Peter is clearly giving reference to God's word. Notice in a couple of verses at the end of chapter 1, verse 23. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. And then notice, through the living and abiding, What? Word of God. So he's bringing that to reference. He's saying, this is how you were born again. It was through the living and abiding word of God. And then again in verse 25 of chapter 1. But the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So because of this context, as we come in to the next few verses in chapter 2, it's very clear that when Peter says the pure spiritual milk... He's referring to God's word. Some versions even had, I know the King James Version does and maybe other versions as well, but some versions have uh, the, the pure milk of the word. So that word in Greek that's, that's translated for spiritual, there's some flexibility of how that can be translated. And so sometimes it's pure milk of the word or pure spiritual meat, milk. But all that to say, Peter is saying, this. I'm talking about God's word. I'm not talking about this, you know, this mystical drink. I'm not talking about this mystical experience. No, I'm talking about God's word and the pure and uncompromising word of God that can help you to grow. Another confusing part about this statement, Paul, when he was talking to the Corinthian church that was a a backslidden church body of believers, unfortunately, Paul challenged him and says, listen, I could not give you the meat of the word. I had to give you the milk. So in that sense, it was almost like a a lesser value. But this is not the context of Peter. Peter's talking to some new believers, but he's also talking to some who are seasoned believers. One himself had already been a a seasoned believer. He had known Christ for for a, a long time. And even if you've known Christ for maybe three months or or 30 years or more, this challenge is for you to value, to search after, to seek the pure and uncompromising milk of the word. Think about these next couple statements that a friend of mine, a pastor friend of mine in uh, in McDonough uh, posted recently. They were challenging to me. We all believe the Bible until it contradicts what we believe about the Bible. Yeah, yeah, I believe God's word. God is love and God is merciful and he is. But what about when the Bible shows us some things that like, oh man, I I don't really like that part. I'm not really gonna go to that section a whole lot. So it's easy to say, yeah, we believe the Bible until it contradicts what we believe about the Bible. Next statement. The gospel we preach today would leave the demoniac of Gadara in his chains and the woman taken in adultery an adulteress. Because oftentimes it's used and distorted and misinterpreted and applied to say, you know, well, well, whatever we're doing, we're kind of just kind of mold it 
to fit what we would like to believe about the Bible. For many in our culture, and not just in America, but we saw this certainly during our time in Brazil, but for many in our culture, Christianity and the Bible are like layers of clothes that can be added on when we feel it's convenient and beneficial to do so. But then in other circumstances and in other areas of life, we can take those same layers of clothes off and kind of lay aside when it's better to not kind of have them around and then put them back on and take them off. That is not true biblical Christianity. That's not what we see in God's word. Many who would claim to know Christ would not look to the Bible as their authoritative source for things like instruction on what true love is all about. They, we, we, it's easy to swallow what the world sends us as, as love being basically just lust and just rampant sexual passions. That's not the design of God's true love that he, he gives us. Many would not, even who claim to know Christ, would not look to the Bible as their authoritative source for how to build a marriage, how to develop a, a family. But yet there's, there's all these instructions in God's word, but yet it's easy for us, even as we profess Christ, to look to the experts of the world in this book and that book and this friend of mine who's given me this advice and that advice. And then when God's word says, no, this is what a biblical marriage looks like. This is what a family is supposed to be passionate about. Is it authoritative for you? Many who claim to know Christ would not consider the Bible as authoritative when they go to rear their children. They want to have maybe good children. They want to have successful children. But the Bible tells us and teaches us children are a heritage of the Lord. That we're to instruct them in the ways of the Lord. In essence, we are to look to have godly children. We're, we're to, to prepare and, and build servant-minded children, not just good and successful. Those who profess Christ oftentimes would even not take the Bible as an authoritative source for an understanding of the biological design of men and women. Oh, well, it's modern times. Things have changed. We know more. There's more science. Really? I think the Bible is still true. The Bible is still the authoritative source that of God created man and woman. We don't oftentimes even look at the authoritative source of the Bible about the God-given gift of sex. When is that to be enjoyed? With who is that to be enjoyed? Now, I would imagine that for most of us, these things that I've covered so far, you would say, yes, pastor, I'm, I stand on God's word for that. I'm not ashamed. I'm, I'm, I'm faithful and confident in those things. Okay, well, what about these, these other things? So, so many of us who say, yes, we know Christ, we follow Christ, but yet in our leisure choices, and what kind of entertainment we consume? No, I mean, the Bible's not an authority on that. How I, how I structure my life on day-to-day choices and how I spend my time? Well, no, 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 the Bible's not really, it doesn't really say anything to me about that. How, how I choose a job and where I'm going to go live for a job and even where I study and all these. Well, no, 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 the Bible doesn't have anything to say about those things. Really? We see that, in, in essence, and this isn't original to me, but think about this statement. Many professing believers live practically as atheists. Many professing believers live practically as atheists. 
By their mouth, they say, yes, we believe in Jesus Christ. We follow him. We value his word. We, we follow his word. But then in practice, in day-to-day life, the marriage doesn't show it. Entertainment choices don't show it. Thought life doesn't show it. Uh, priorities don't show it. So living practically as an atheist. So again, the question is, do you value the pure and uncompromising word of God? All of it is valuable. Notice some of these things that uh, some of the other uh, believers in the time, Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, 16, all scripture, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. The next verse, that the man of God may be complete. So, Think, think about it kind of the other way. If you don't value all of Scripture, then you, follower of Christ, cannot be complete. You will not be able to be a growing and maturing disciple of Christ. If you just take some of the gospel and some of God's word that's convenient for you, you will not reach maturity. You will not grow as God wants you to grow. Your growth will be stunted. All scriptures read that by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Then I want you to see again Paul's passion to to preach, to share. The, The whole counsel of God is a phrase that he used. Notice this in Acts chapter 20. And now behold, I, this is Paul talking, know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face Again, therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you, notice this, the whole counsel of God, the pure and uncompromising word of God. One of my biggest burdens and prayers is that as I study through the week and prepare to share with you what God has given me through his word and hopefully be a compliment on what you're learning through the week is that I will be faithful to God's word. That I won't shrink away. That I won't think, well, goodness, well, what will such and such a person think about this? Or what will this group think if I say this? My prayer is that as a minister of the word of God, that I would come before you and say, these aren't David's ideas. This isn't huff, Huffmananity. This is Christianity according to God's word. And I want to be faithful to give you the whole counsel of God. That was Paul's prayer. So the question again is, do you value this? And then what happens? As you're confronted with scripture, as you see God's word, and it begins to show things that are contradictory in your life, what choice will you make? We've seen to reject the former way of life. We've seen the importance then of, of growing, you know, in the, or, or valuing the pure nourishment of God's word. And then the third thing is to grow. Grow in your new way of life as a redeemed saint. Grow in your new way of life as a redeemed saint. This is a very common pattern of discipleship throughout the New Testament. In Ephesians 4, some of you looked at this during growth groups last week, but in Ephesians 4, we see it in Ephesians 4 as put off the old man, renew your mind with the, with the God's word, and then to put on the new man in Christ. Same idea, reject the former way of life. 
crave after, long for the spiritual milk of God's word, the pure nourishment of God's word. And then the third step, to grow in your new way of life as a redeemed saint. The pure nourishment of God's word leads to growth and victory. Let's look again at 1 Peter 2.2. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. So this, the pure nourishment, the, the milk of God's word, uncompromised and faithful to God's word, that is what is necessary to grow. And, and understand that this doesn't mean that this is like a process and you are being saved. In essence, is once you are a child of God, once you are a follower of Christ, as this happens in your life, your salvation will become more and more evident. The people around you, your family, your friends, your neighbors, people at school are going to be able to see more and more that person is redeemed in Christ. They may not even know how to, how to say. They may not even know Christ, but they'll see a difference. That's the idea of growing up into salvation, of giving evidence of who you truly are. We see that sometimes we think, well, uh, man, I, I, I like spiritual things. But they end up kind of being like snacks for us. We, we don't really go for the, the nourishment. I'm going to give you an example. It's a silly, silly illustration, but I like cereal, right? I, I enjoy cereal most, many of the nights before bed, uh, Kim and I will have our, our kind of evening snack, and we get some cereal out. And sometimes I'm a kid at heart, so I'll get Fruit Loops or, you know, uh, Lucky Charms or, or whatever. And occasionally I'll eat some healthy cereal, but still have to have some sugar in it. But I, I enjoy the cereal. But if I'm going to begin a Saturday of working outside, and I know that I'm going to be cutting up trees and hauling up, up, up the hill and, and burning things, I don't start with a bowl of cereal. Because I know that very soon after I'm outside working, I'm going to be starving. So on those mornings, I want to make sure, hey, let's, let's do some pancakes and some bacon and some, some juice. I mean, I want a, a hearty breakfast because I'm going to need this nourishment to work this whole day long. Spiritually, it's no different. Sometimes we're, we're convenient and we say, no, but I, I, pastor, I read the verse of the day. I, I pray at mealtime. I listen to, to some worship music occasionally. And we just snack. Snack a little bit here. and We snack a little bit there. And we think, this, this is going to get me through. This will be enough. But Peter says, no, long for the pure spiritual milk. This is what's necessary to grow up into salvation. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 11, we saw this last week, but it talks about the passions of the flesh, notice, which wage war against the soul. So this is not something that just a snack is going to be sufficient. Reading the verse of the day is great, but it's not enough. Just listening to a little bit of worship music is wonderful, but it's not enough. Saying prayers at mealtime, that's a good habit, but it's not enough. That's not the pure spiritual milk. It's not enough of that. So as we prepare for battles, we prepare for that spiritual warfare against our soul, how do you prepare? What are the weapons that you use? Michael, for Christmas, uh, got an Orby gun. Okay, so we were at the Thielen's house uh, several months ago, and we were introduced to Orby guns. They shoot these little gel um, pellets or ammunition. I won't shoot you. 
Michael asked me, what are you going to do with my gun this morning? I'm like, well, I'm going to shoot the crowd. He's like, well, they'll never come back. <laughs> I'm like, you're right. But let's imagine that I were to go to Paris Island where the Marines do their basic training. And I were to find the drill sergeant. I would say, hey, drill sergeant, let me take a shot at these guys, all right? Yeah, okay, okay, pastor, go for it. And then I got the Orby gun out, and I, go, I look at all the recruits, and I say, all right, men, you better eat a hearty breakfast because tomorrow morning we're going to do some drills with Orby guns to prepare you for battle. What do you think the new recruits would think? Don't say what they might say to me, okay? <laughs> I don't want to hear that. But they would mock me. Like, pastor, stick to pastoring. We'll stick to soldiering, okay? You have no idea what the battle entails. But spiritually, oftentimes that's how we prepare. We know in a sense that there's spiritual warfare, but either we forget or we think that our little weapons, our, just a little snack here and there and just a little bit of preparation will be enough. And Peter's saying, listen, these passions of the flesh, they wage war against your soul. You can't just snack, friends. You've got to feed on the nourishment of God's word. If you only eat on Sunday morning, it's not enough. You will starve. You're gonna be malnourished. As you face temptations, as you face things through the week, if you only depend on this hour that we open God's word together, it will not be enough. I promise. And Peter's saying, long for, crave this, not just as your Sunday ritual, not as just something that you go and do, an event that you go and watch, but this is your life. This is part of the passion of being a follower of Christ. Don't live practically as an atheist all through the week, say, God, help me to give my heart to you and to crave for, your, for knowledge of you. Paul says, man, I, I forget the things in the past, but I long to know you better. I long to know the power of the resurrection. And Paul knew much of Jesus Christ, but he says, I want to know more. I want to grow more. Notice what we see in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Paul talks all about the profile of a believer in 1 Peter and how we're an heir of the living hope and we're an example of genuine faith. And then in 2 Peter, he reminds them, keep growing. Don't, don't think you've arrived. Don't, don't stop, but, but keep growing in the grace. Now I want to point you to someone if anybody had an excuse to not spend and not to value the word of God much, it was Jesus Christ because he's the, he is the word of God. But notice what he says when he was being tempted in the wilderness. This was a time that we could certainly look at as spiritual warfare. Now, thankfully, Jesus Christ is sinless. He's all-powerful, he conquered death, he conquered sin. But notice what Jesus says, it's extremely important to us as followers of him. Notice what he said in this time frame. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word. Not the convenient things, not the easy things, not the things that fit into modern American culture, not the things that won't offend anybody. He says, listen, you, this is every word. You can't live by just bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That is how you and I are to live as we value the pure and uncompromising word of God. 
So we see that the pure nourishment of God's word leads to growth and victory. I'm, I'm burdened that as, as sometimes in, through, through the years of ministry, many have come and says, Pastor, I just, I can't, I just am not having victory. And, and often I'll ask, what, what's, the, what's your nourishment? How are you doing and spending time in God's word and memorizing scripture and, and celebrating that with other believers even? How is your spiritual nourishment? Are you just snacking? Are you just prepping for like a little skirmish? Or do you understand that this is war, that it's waging war against your soul? And then we see next that a meaningful relationship with Christ is necessary for growth and victory. A meaningful relationship with Christ is necessary for growth and victory. Talked about the pure nourishment of God's word leads to growth. Coupled with that, it should not be separated from that, but a meaningful relationship as we look back on what God has done for us and in us that motivates us once again to continue to grow and go back to him and search for more knowledge of Jesus Christ, a relational knowledge in him. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 3. It says, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So this follows verse 2 where Peter says, listen, long for and crave the pure spiritual milk. Long for that if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is is good. We're reminded that Peter reminds us that we, are, we have a new way of life. We are newborn infants. He's, he's basically saying, listen, you're not the same that you were anymore, so don't go back to that. Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And then in verse 21, for our sake... He made him, Jesus Christ, to be sin who knew no sin. That in him we might become the righteousness of God. So in summary, old things have passed away. All things have become new. Our unrighteousness was taken by Jesus Christ. He has given us his righteousness. So these, this is the new way of life. This is part of tasting that the Lord is good. In years gone by, how many of you have sold the world's finest chocolate at some point in your life? I'm just curious. All right, great. So Rachel and Kim, good. Um, so this is a, a, a very common fundraiser, at least it was, among private schools back in our day and I guess back in Rachel's day. Um, so, but it's, it's, it's something that I can remember to this day the distinct smell of the classrooms during this fundraising time. You could smell the chocolate, it was good stuff. So Kim and her older sister Tina, they were trying to win a trip to Disney World for their family. So they began to take, they had this, I don't know if their dad suggested this or who, who gave them this idea, but they would go around to offices in Pensacola, Florida and they would step into the, to the front office area where the secretaries and other office staff were. And they had some of the chocolate cut up into small pieces. They had some of the chocolate-covered almonds out on a little plate. And they would say, hey, would you all like to sample some of the world's finest chocolate? Who turns that down? Especially cute little girls asking them that. And so they're like, yeah, yeah, we'll take some. And then the follow-up question was, how many, how many uh, cases of chocolate would you like to buy? <laughs> cases? Well, I guess we'll take one. But they sold a lot of chocolate, and they did win a trip to Disney World. 
Because people, as they tasted it, they were like, yeah, I want more of that. And this is what Peter's saying. He's saying, listen, if indeed you have tasted, and and in other words, he's saying, since you have tasted that the Lord is good, go back for more. Don't be satisfied with a little snidbit here and a little bit there, but go back for more and taste more that the Lord is good. Before the Christmas break was done, we had one day left, and so we took our kids uh, to the Savoy Car Museum in Cartersville. We had a good time. It was fun. They have, they have monster trucks as one of their uh, displays right now, and so we got to stand underneath a monster truck, and the tires were bigger than we are, and it was really cool. But after we left the Savoy Car Museum, we went downtown Cartersville to Appalachian Grill. Had some good reviews. We've never been there, but it, it looked like a good restaurant. And so as we sat down, we asked the waitress, what do you recommend? We've never been here. What do you recommend we get? She says, I would recommend the pecan-crusted chicken. I'm like, oh, pecan-crusted chicken. I mean, I like chicken, but chicken? I mean, chicken. You know, and I said, Kim, she said, well, I mean, that's what she's suggesting. She's saying it's really good. She went on and on about it, and we're like, okay, I guess we'll try it. So we ordered the the pecan-crusted chicken. We got one other dish, and then the four of us uh, split those two entrees. And let me tell you, the pecan-crusted chicken is fantastic. It was very tender, and we couldn't get enough of it. I mean, it was very, very good. In fact, she came back around. She says, how is everything? He was like, man, the pecan-crusted chicken, you are spot on. This is good stuff. So she recommended it to us. I'm recommending it to you. Last weekend, Mary had a friend over, and I overheard her talking about the pecan-crusted chicken at Appalachian Grill. It is good stuff. Why? Because we've tasted it, and I want to have more. What about spiritually? Think back. How have you tasted that the Lord is good? In your life, how has God shown you his faithfulness, his forgiveness, his mercy? How has God used the pure and uncompromising word to encourage you, but also to convict you, to show you, man, you're going back to your former way of life. You need to reject that. You need to follow the new way of life in me. How have you tasted that the Lord is good? It's interesting as we think about who wrote this. Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Peter had tasted the goodness and kindness of the Lord. As he wrote this passage, maybe he stopped for a minute to reflect back on the moment when Jesus knelt before him and began to wash his dirty feet. Jesus, God Almighty, the great I am, the Emmanuel God with us is stooping before Peter and washing his feet. Maybe Peter then called back about when he declared, Christ, I'm ready to die for you. Jesus says, no, actually not. You're going to deny me three times. And after Peter denied him that third time, one of the Gospels records that Jesus was close enough, Peter was off in a distance, but Peter, Jesus was close enough where he looked at Peter. Maybe Peter recalled that moment. Perhaps Peter recalled, you know, even the moment where he he took out his sword and cut off the ear of a soldier and in defense, he thought, of Jesus Christ. But Jesus at that point said, Peter, put, put your sword up. And then picked up the ear and healed one of the very soldiers who came to harm him. And Peter's watching the goodness of the Lord. 
But I would imagine that probably one of the scenes that played over and over and over again in Peter's mind was after Jesus resurrected. And when Jesus was on the the shore of the Sea of Tiberias, it's another name for the Sea of Galilee, and as Jesus was on the shore and he had a fire going, one of the last fires that was mentioned prior to that was the fire that Peter was around when he rejected Jesus three times. But Jesus already had a fire going on the shore, and as Peter and other fishermen and disciples came, he said, hey, come and eat with me. And as he fed them, they fellowshiped and they were nourished physically and they were with the resurrected Christ. But I imagine that Peter again recalls back again and again and again where that one moment where Jesus, and I don't know how he did it, I don't know if he just did a motion or if he said, hey Peter, let's take a walk. And if I were Peter, I would kind of have felt like in that moment, oh boy, here it comes. The rebuke is finally, here, here we go. But Jesus walks with Peter and asks him three times, hey, Peter, do you love me? And each time Peter assures Jesus, yes, I, I love you. And, Peter, and Jesus says, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. Peter had tasted and seen the goodness of Christ. And because he tasted that and because he wasn't, he wasn't satisfied with just where he had grown to that point, but he, he continued to pursue his Savior and his shepherd, you and I this morning in 2024, 2,000 years or so later, we, we are looking at the same stuff that Peter was used to write as an obedient He was being obedient to Jesus, and just as Jesus said to him, feed my sheep, we're being fed this morning. Because Peter had tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Is it easy? Peter saw that it wasn't always easy. He was so tempted to to, to, to run away that he denied Christ three times. Christianity is not an easy life, but taste and see that the Lord is good. And I guarantee you, he will not disappoint. Not with the riches necessarily, not with perfect health necessarily, but you will have a purpose and a peace that nothing else in this world will be able to offer. Would you close your eyes and bow your heads as we close this morning?